You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Close to the prophecy of Isaiah, and we're going to read there in Isaiah chapter 8 into chapter 9, and if you're using a church Bible passage, is on page 693 page 693. In our morning services, David has been taking us through the second half of the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. And the background to that is the exile of God's people in Babylon. And it's in that context of their exile far from home that Isaiah sees that their deepest need is not someone who will deliver them from exile, but deliver them from the sin that has caused the exile. And so, in more recent weeks, we've been studying the passages that speak about the coming of Jesus as the suffering servant. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, however, have a different background What's in view here is not the Babylonian captivity, but the Assyrian invasion. If you were ever afflicted with the poems of Lord Byron uh, when you were in secondary school or high school, uh, you will remember the destruction of Sennacherib and the Assyrian coming down like the wolf to the fold. And that's the background that uh, is in the first 39 chapters, and uh, already in different ways in the service, the theme of Isaiah here is that we cannot trust in princes, uh, we can't trust in our armies to save us, we must trust in the Lord, but he's speaking into a context in which, in fact, people are trusting in princes and armies. And so, the famous passage, chapter 6, it's in the year that King Uzziah dies that he sees the occupied throne of heaven, and he learns to look to the Lord. And here, uh, he is dealing uh, with the mistrust and the unbelief of the people, and he speaks to them in in this way in chapter 8 and Verse 11, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be forsaken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I, 
and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, at last, we get to familiar words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Probably if you are of my generation, when between Christmas and your birthday, nobody ever gave you anything because in the post-war years there wasn't money around, Christmas was very special for you. And I remember as a child, on Boxing Day, I would try to rewrap my Christmas presents in order to recapture the excitement of Christmas Day and this big day in the year when you actually got things you didn't really need but truly wanted. And so you would be forgiven for thinking that uh, someone of that generation and choosing this text on New Year's Day is trying to engage in a kind of spiritual form of infantile regression where you try and, and repack the thrill of the Christmas message. What is interesting about this passage, especially the passage that begins in chapter 9, verse 2, 
that most of us who have been in churches or watched television services, the nine lessons and carols, this is a passage that we always associate with Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. But interestingly, the New Testament never does. What the New Testament associates this passage with is not the birth of Jesus, but the ministry of Jesus. The one place where it's cited is not to do with Bethlehem, but to do with Galilee, with Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptations, and the beginning of His ministry. And it is, of course, marvelously appropriate uh, if you were uh, inclined to do an interesting little Bible study in which you took something from the Old Testament and saw it as a framework of reference for understanding Jesus in the Gospels, this would be a great text to go through the Gospel narrative asking yourself, how is He a wonderful counselor? How does He show Himself to be the mighty God? Where in meeting people's needs does He prove Himself to be a Father who is everlasting? And how is it, as the New Testament tells us, that Jesus Christ makes people whole and gives them peace? So, this word of Isaiah's about the child who is born, about the son who is given, is not so much about what takes place around Bethlehem, but what takes place during the whole ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is one thing we need to understand and set our hearts on at the beginning of a new year, it is this, that Jesus Christ, as we see Him in the Gospels, is exactly the same in disposition towards men and women today. And these verses, this, this one elongated quadruple name that Isaiah is told is to be given to the child born, given to the son, is a great anchor for us at the beginning, as I say, of a new year. And indeed, the atmosphere in which this promise appears of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9, has a kind of contemporary ring to it. Uh, people who are trusting in politicians who have failed, uh, people who are reading the horoscopes in the daily newspapers, which fascinatingly are given much more space than any Christian column, and I imagine the people are paid for writing the stuff in days when, as Isaiah says, people will look to the earth. Instead of looking to the Lord, they will look to the earth. And so, in our modern age, there is in the abandonment of faith in God, uh, this panic to preserve the earth, this strange paradox where the whale is an endangered species, but the pre-born child who is also an endangered species gets less protection. And there is 
as Isaiah says, darkness and gloom. And there is a great temptation, isn't there, for us as Christian believers to look at the world, uh, to, to tremble at the beginning of a new year as rapidly things seem to get worse and worse. And the YouGov poll of last week tells us that belief in God in our country is on the slide. And now there are almost as many people who don't believe in God, but who believe in some higher spiritual power. It's actually code language for saying you believe in God, but you don't want Him messing in your life, so you depersonalize Him. And we look to the future those of us who have children, grandchildren. So easy to feel with Isaiah in his day, in the, in the prospect of the, of the enemy coming in like a wolf to the fold to devour the sheep and the lambs. And here is this great word to us, that the Christ who is ours is exactly what we need. And indeed, more than that, He is all that we need, because He is, first of all, for those who are in the dark, a wonderful counselor who shines light on our way. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. On them, the light of God will shine. And it's possible for us too as Christian believers to feel that we are walking in the dark. Much later on, Isaiah will return to that theme. Let the one who walks in the darkness and has no light, where one or another of us might be this morning, feeling even as Christian believers we are walking in the darkness and we have no light, and it's light that we need. What are we to do? Well, says Isaiah, we are to trust in the name of the Lord. He is a wonderful counselor who shines light into our situation. A number of years ago, I had a very interesting interview with Ian Murray, the biographer of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he described how at the end of services in Westminster Chapel, this would be the 1950s, 1960s, people would spend some time with Dr. Lloyd-Jones and unburden their problems. And it was the way he described what happened that fascinated me. He said if they needed a longer discussion, then Dr. Lloyd-Jones would make an appointment. But he said many times people would leave from being with him as he, as he sought to bring the Scriptures to bear on their lives and the words Ian Murray used were these. They would have light on their situation. Light on their situation. And actually, that's what we need. That's what we need much more than the, the external darkness around us or the problems that beset us being taken from us. What we need most of all is light that enables us to understand that our lives are held in the hands of God to whom both the light and the darkness are exactly the same. And this is, this is what is offered to us in the gospel. 
better. This is who is offered to us in the gospel. We need counsel because we may be in the dark, and he comes to us as a wonderful counselor. And then says Isaiah, he's not only a wonderful counselor, but he is a a mighty God. We not only need light in our darkness, but we need deliverance, freedom from our bondage. That's the point. It's interesting that the word that he uses here, mighty God, uh, mighty here has has the connotation of heroic, um, the atmosphere of, of God acting, as it were, in a heroic fashion to deliver His people. And it's very interesting to notice the, the illustration that Isaiah uses earlier on, isn't it? In verse 4, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Um, Most of us know what the day of Midian's defeat was, don't we? It's the story of Gideon. And it's it's illuminating, isn't it? Because remember remember, uh, what what Gideon does? He, He begins with this massive crowd, and God says, that's too many if we're going to defeat the Midianites. And so, he whittles it down, and and God says, there's still far too many. They find a way of whittling it down even further, and eventually he, he gets his army whittled down to 300 men, and uh, they have clay pots, and they have lights, and they smash the clay pots, and they shout, the sword of the Lord, and Gideon, and uh, the Midianites sent into panic and defeat it. Why that illustration? Because that's how God works. That's how He shows His might. Not by what the world calls might and power and impressiveness. And and you can see how all this is leading up to the Lord Jesus, can't you? That that He comes not, uh, not to the throne room, not to the palace as the wise men thought, but uh, into a poor family. Uh, no room for him in the inn, and how later on he is taken and and crucified. Uh, What is all this to demonstrate? It is to demonstrate how blind the world is to how God works, that what men despise, God employs. The very point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 1, isn't it? That God takes the the weak things of this world, takes the crucified Savior, and through the crucified Savior, He delivers His people from their real bondage, which is their bondage in sin and shame, that they are not only in darkness, but they are imprisoned. Or as Jesus puts it, if the darkness is what you think is light and it's within you. How great is that darkness? Um, I don't know if any of you may have listened to uh, Bach's Christmas oratorio over the Christmas period. 
incidentally, that's not the latest boy band, just those of you who are wondering. If you listen to Bach's Christmas Oratorio um, and, and you don't know what's going to happen, there are, there are two points at which you get, you, get, you get a tremendous surprise. Because into, into the music of the Christmas Oratorio, uh, both at the beginning and at the end, he, he weaves in a tune that many of us would be familiar with from elsewhere. It's the tune to which we sing Paul Gerhardt's hymn, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded, With Grief and Shame Weighed Down. It's not surprising that Bach often wrote the letters SDG at the end of his compositions, Soli Del Gloria, To God Alone Be the Glory. And he, he, he's able to preach it musically, as it were. And into the, into the narrative, there's this, this echo of the way in which this Savior will deliver us by bearing our sins, taking our bondage, the, the, the vision that Isaiah eventually will have in chapter 53, that he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, chastisement for our sin and peace would be upon him. So he comes to us, says Isaiah, and he is, he is given this marvelous name. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He, he comes to those who are in the dark, and as a counselor, he shines light. Comes to those who are in bondage, and as a mighty God, he sets us free through his crucifixion. But then he also comes to us as spiritual orphans, and he becomes to us an everlasting father who will adopt us. It might seem strange to think about the son being a father, but what Isaiah is seeing here is the, the father becoming visible, manifesting himself in the son. Remember how Jesus puts it? When, uh, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, and uh, the disciples say, well, if you just show us, Thomas says, isn't it, just show us the Father, that will be enough. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you, Thomas? Haven't you yet understood that he who has seen me has seen the Father? Now, what is it that this is answering? It's, it's answering our our homelessness, our spiritual homelessness, and it's answering our homesickness. I had a student once, a doctoral student, who wrote his entire doctoral PhD dissertation on the theme of homecoming in the writings of C.S. Lewis. And in Lewis's case, he was so right. This discovery that in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's it's like, it's like coming home at last. And what a, what a word this is for our, our contemporary society, isn't it? I mean, these different titles have struck different generations in different ways, but uh, this has become a fatherless generation, hasn't it? 
number of children who do not go home to their birth mother and father. And what a word there is in the gospel for those who are homeless. G.K. Chesterton has a lovely poem about Christmas where he speaks about Christ as being the, the one in whom God became homeless. But we can be at home. And for those of us who are Christians, that's our testimony, isn't it? Amidst all the blessings of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, coming, coming out of the darkness into the light, experiencing my chains fell off, my heart was free. There's a sense of, of coming home to the one who loves us in a, in a loveless world, who cares for us in, a, in an uncaring world, and who is… Did you ever… My parents were older than the parents of most of my friends, and as a child, I used to often have this terrible fear that because they were so old, they would die. I'd be left without a father. And uh, that's actually a, a good picture of, of where we are, isn't it? But this father, he is an everlasting father. Uh, David says, my father and my mother will forsake me. But the everlasting father will never ever forsake us. It's, it's the ultimate security. And you, you can sense what this must have meant to Isaiah himself and, his, and Mrs. Isaiah and these, these two little boys uh, that you hope you never get the passage that you're supposed to read Shi'ar Jashub and Maharshal al-Hashbaz. And I can only pronounce that name because of all Old Testament names. That's my absolute favorite. <laughs> Maharshal al-Hashbaz. And he's saying, Lord, here am I and the children you've given me. They're your children. We are your children. You adopt us into your family. And so there is light for our darkness. There is deliverance for our bondage. There is family for our loneliness, and there is peace for our restlessness. He is the wonderful counsel, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is the Shalom Prince, wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus in whom we are told that we will find peace, peace with God and in the fellowship of His people this shalom with one another that is like nothing on earth because its origins don't arise from the earth. And, you know, this is, the, this is the wish every Christmas, isn't it? You know, if you're famous, the one thing you're supposed to wish for at Christmas time or New Year is peace in Afghanistan or peace somewhere else. And and you listen as a Christian, and, and you know it's fatuous, isn't it? Because there can never be peace in our relationships until the real peace has been established. We're restless, as Augustine says, until our hearts find their rest in Him. Or as, the, as Ecclesiastes puts it, 
you, you've placed this burden on our lives. You've set eternity in our hearts. My dear friends, this is the absolute tragedy of our secularism and our atheism and our agnosticism and our so-called humanism. It says you're, you're going to be satisfied by something in this world. And you cannot possibly be if you were actually created for someone in the other world. And so when He comes, when He lives, when He dies for our sins, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement to bring us peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are made whole. So, this is a wonderful text for the new year, not just a wonderful text to use as lenses to read the Gospels, but a a wonderful promise now fulfilled for me to set my heart on at the beginning of a new year, whatever it may bring to me and bring to my family. There is a counselor who will give me light. There is a redeemer who will set me free. There is, by God's grace, a wonderful Father who will welcome me home. And incidentally, have you noticed that the Father in the parable of the prodigal son isn't actually the Father? It's Jesus. He told this parable to those who were criticizing Jesus, Luke tells us, He is an everlasting Father, and He is the Prince of Peace. There's one curiosity here as we finish. It's this. This name is introduced by the words, and He will be called. So, if you're, you know, if you're in your Hercule Poirot mode or whoever happens to be your favorite detective, I've given mine away probably, you want to ask the question, but who will call him this? And of course, that's the point, isn't it? Who will call him this? Can you call him this? Will you call him this? What a wonderful thing it is to be able to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given Your Son to us, coming first as a child and then entering the public arena in Galilee and showing Himself to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. We thank You that He is the same today as He was then. And we pray for each one of us and for our families that we may ourselves know him then as our wonderful counselor, that we may name him thus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We pray this for your joy, for our blessing, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.